Edna seems to believe in God on some surface level, but a Christian in the classical or evangelical sense of the word, she is not. When Earl crashes and starts scripture bombing that meeting, there is no love in anything he has to say. It's nothing but hate-fueled rhetoric towards someone who doesn't see things his way. This is one of the most accurate and truthful moments in this movie. I think it's the foyer of heaven. Yeah, I guess, but you would think it would be better lit. You would think. Maybe some entertainment, some snacks, you know, <laughs> canapes, nut cups, you know, whatever. <laughs> he wants her gone. He states why, and that's all we get. And for a guy who is so steeped in Christian dogma, he sure was quick to procure that abortion for her, wasn't he? I'm just yeah. saying. That's one thing that I kind of found impressive about Edna is that she never actually let this go to her head. No. She just wanted to give it. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get Unbound. Now, Don Henley and Patty Smythe were right. Sometimes love just ain't enough, mm. especially when it comes to things like healing people with magical powers you get when you die and come back. Because if you refuse to credit Jesus for it, it must be the devil what doing it, right? Right. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight we're looking at one of those movies that made my childhood just a little creepier and scared me half to death back in the day. We're going to take a look at the movie Resurrection, the 1980 classic that shows what can happen when you return home to your tiny town in Kansas and start healing people without a choir and an offering plate. We're going to dive into all the horrific details in just a few, but first, you got your Jesus on my campus, again. A journey into the Shadowlands, pretty exciting, huh? And rain, baby, rain. It's all part of this week's Christians Behaving Badly Fuckery Level Infinity Edition. <laughs> what have you got for us this week, Shell? Well, being a senior in high school is full of stresses. You have to figure out what the heck to do after school ends. You need to apply to colleges or get a job if you're going to do that. I have a pretty fond memory, though, of being at a college fair, listening to people talk about their colleges and wondering where I'd go. Not that I chose well, of course. Oh, don't worry. You're in good company. It can be additionally stressful, though, if your school counselors and teachers bring you to what you think is a college fair, but is really a massive church service. Welcome to the Arcadia Bible Academy. Academy. <laughs> That's I when I was reading through your notes, that was the very first thing I thought I of. I know. It's like you're at a college fair and then booger. <laughs> approaches you about going to Bible college. Yeah, weird. This happened to senior students at the Baton Rouge Magnet High in Louisiana. Instead of a college fair, they were brought to an event called Day of Hope. Oh, brother. Yeah, you know where this is going already. This Day of Hope is just full of red flag events. It was called a Day of Hope, a phrase that carries religious connotations, Students were segregated by gender when the substantive portion of the program began. The speakers for the girls included a pastor who promoted virginity, another woman who suggested kids shouldn't date around but just wait for God to bring you the perfect guy, and a nurse who told a traumatic story about her son taking his own life. Okay, I, I have to pause for just a minute here because I can't read my notes anymore. My eyes have rolled so far back into my head. <laughs> 
that I need to do something to write this situation before we continue. Okay, so I'll just cut out however long we have to sit on this before we can come back to it. And through the miracle of editing, here we are. And uh, when we last left Shell, we were talking about this thing called the Day of Hope. Yeah. And yeah. Do we have to talk more about this at this point? Uh, yeah, a little bit. All right. Okay, let's let's just get through this then. Once the kids came back together, they heard a sermon from a man named Donk. Is he related to Gonk? I don't know. The, lo- the lovable droid from Star Wars? No. <laughs> Gonk. <laughs> Gonk. Who, cl- who claimed to overcome his own paralysis, got sentenced to life in prison, and somehow got out. Donk is the nickname of Pastor Trell Webb, and he does like a certain story of his testimony and it's just weird part of me wants to know where the nickname came from and part of me is very pleased to not know yeah right i don't really want to know there appeared to be an altar call at the end of the session for students who wanted to commit to christ yeah just your typical college fair right it happened at every college fair that i went to i don't know why this one is is so unique a pretty rude wake-up for anyone thinking they were going to get a head start on their futures. In response to the concerns, the East Baton Rouge Parish School System issued a statement defending the event as an elevation of a traditional college and career fair. That's a hijacking yeah. of a traditional college and career fair. That's about the only thing that's been heightened. This statement also defended the school district's partnership with the local nonprofit that put on the event, 2911 Mentoring Families, I don't know what verse they're referencing, saying the group is providing additional support services for students in our district. We look forward to seeing what our over 2,100 student participants will continue to achieve with the resources and knowledge gained from this event. I'm sure they think so. Well, I'm sure that they do, but I mean, for starters, I want to know, who asked for these, quote-unquote, additional support services? Yeah, right. Who even asked for this? And who decided that they needed it, especially in this kind of a setting? That's the real question that I have about all of this. Yeah. They, they just, they, they, they have this way of just crashing any yeah. party that they feel like crashing. Yeah. And then trying to make it sound like there's value. <laughs> to what they're doing. Additional support services for students. No, no, no. All you did was crash this event so that you could spew your religious rhetoric and make a few more converts because that's just the name of the game, isn't it? Right. It's all a big game. Get people to make this decision and that's really all that they care about. Yeah. They, they care about adding to their numbers and they're going to do it any way that they can figure out to do it. Additional support services, my ass. Yeah. What exactly are you supporting here? You're not supporting these people's future goals because you're trying to hijack their future goals. And as someone who had his future goals hijacked <laughs> in a kind of similar way, but not at an event like this, but I did have my future goals hijacked by these people. Well, yeah. It's just like, could you possibly just... Fuck the hell off and let these young people make some decisions on their own about what their future is going to look like. Yeah. Some students and educators were extremely shocked and disappointed by the event. 
One student, Alexis, said of the event, today's Day of Hope field trip was a horrible experience. It was not advertised as a religious event, but rather a college fair. The majority of students chose to attend this field trip on the promise of free food and the opportunity to skip class. However, the majority of students were not only disappointed by this event, but traumatized as well. I'll bet. I attended this college fair as someone who plans on applying to colleges soon. So I was disappointed once I saw what the event actually was. Then we were informed that we had to register to vote in order to receive the free food advertised on the flyer. Yes, voting is very important. However, when registration is required for food on a 100 degree Fahrenheit day at around noon, that's where there's an issue. Oh, definitely. At this point is when the college fair occurred. There were about six tables of various colleges set up. They had candy, pens, brochures, the usual recruitment set up. At the end of everything, the host made the audience make a choice. He said, if you want to eat, pizza is right outside those doors for you. If you choose change, if you want to get better, come toward the stage towards me. At this point, we had not eaten, and frankly, I was done being traumatized, so I left the building. The only hope I have gained from this experience is the hope that no one will ever have to go through it again. Here's hoping. Yeah, right. An educator said they talked about rape, forgiving the offender in life, suicide, prayer leadership, and many more dark, controversial topics. We had females in the bathrooms crying due to the topics of discussion. Meanwhile, the boys were left outside in the extreme heat. Overall, I'm appalled as a faculty member and as a parent of how this event was executed. Never again should the rights of unknowing parents and diverse community of families and students be violated. An insult to injury was seeing how EBR applauded themselves on how the event was executed. I only hope that the superintendent hears of the pain and suffering from students and parents that were affected. As it turns out, the Christian group has been partnered with the parish school system and has done this event for years with no problems. Hopefully, the more students speak out, the more attention will be brought to this clear violation of the separation of church and state. As if anyone's going to care. Who I know. Who are you going to cry to? The Supreme fucking court? You I think know. they're going to care? It's crazy. It, is, it really is. It's, it's beyond crazy. And I'm just getting so tired of watching these people just do whatever the fuck they want, wherever the fuck they want to do it. And with absolutely no thought or care to how it's affecting the people that they do it to. It yeah. just, it, it absolutely dumbfounds me how you can be part of a religion that touts itself as being about love and just go in there and do this to people. Yeah. Traumatize people. Confuse the living shit out of people. I thought this was supposed to be a college fair. Yeah, right. And, they did you know, too. And I don't remember the part in the Great Commission about lying mm. about what your messaging was about just to lure people in unawares and then hit them with the gospel. I don't think that that was what Jesus intended. Yeah. But when you get it into your head that this is something that we have to do at all costs... Well, then you don't care what it costs anyone else. And that's yeah. a problem. Yeah, that's it really is. That's a big, big-ass problem. And now we get to talk about Greg Locke. Of course. I'm having so much fun with this segment. I know. <laughs> and now for our favorite sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot, 
Pastor Greg Locke. Did you work from nine to five? Yes. To come up with that descriptor for it's him? It's perfect. It definitely is. It, it is that. <laughs> yeah. He's not very happy with a film production crew who did interviews and filmed his sermons for a few days. They were just too accurate. Oh, I'll bet. The streaming service Peacock has just released a series about how conspiracy theories have moved from the margins to the mainstream, exploring how people come to their beliefs and what makes those theories so alluring. The documentary series is called Shadowlands, and I think we should definitely put that on our watch list. It sounds interesting. I think it would be a a good watch. Yeah. One of the subjects in Shadowland is Christian hate preacher Greg Locke of Global Vision Bible Church in Tennessee, whose story is shown primarily in the second and third episodes of the series. And Hemet Mehta says, As someone who's written about Locke for years, and after watching both of those episodes, I can safely say it gives viewers a fairly accurate picture of Locke. He's a confident speaker who realized years ago that trolling liberals was far more powerful and appealing than talking about Jesus. He openly brags on camera about how the anti-gay and anti-trans videos he posted on Facebook helped his page get verified and gain tens of thousands of followers in a relatively short amount of time. Other highlights of the episodes about Locke show him schmoozing it up with Roger Stone, burning books, and openly talking to the producers about how COVID is a hoax and how Bill Gates and George Soros helped steal the 2020 election. Oh, will you get... Off of this already. Oh my yeah. God. I'm, I can't believe we're still hearing that phrase in yeah. new episodes. Get over it. I That's know. what you told us to do in, in 16, right? Yeah. Well, you know what? It's your turn. Get over it. Yeah. Nothing new here, right? There's nothing new in the episodes either. No hot mic moments that were intended for the cutting room floor. If you knew nothing about him, you'd get a pretty accurate picture of him. But he told his congregation that the production team actively made him look bad. No, you made you look bad. It's just that now you're looking at your own self in this mirror that's created by this show. And yeah, you know what? You're not liking yourself very much, are you? No. There's a reason for that. Maybe you should explore that a little bit more. Yeah, he really should. He won't, but he He really should. No, he won't. And this this is how he explained it. You know what they did? It's interesting, and I expect this from lost people. They did everything against us that they promised they wouldn't do. Made us look like idiots. Made us look like insurrectionist QAnon conspiracy theorists. Turned mics on backstage. Tried to get me on a hot mic. Tried to do anything they can. They ain't got nothing on us. One of our ex-staff members sold them footage from January 6th of me with a bullhorn. Standing on a trailer, preaching at the Capitol, which, as Paul said, I repent not. Someone's got to stand up and save this wicked nation. By tearing it apart? Apparently. Jesus Christ. Locke says the filmmakers made his church look like idiots, but most of the footage was of Locke preaching. It's not like the filmmakers added their own narration. They didn't make him look like a conspiracy theorist. He is one. They simply held up a camera in front of Locke's face and pushed record. So, you know, they didn't make him look like anything. No. You know, he's been seeing through a glass darkly and now he sees face to face. See how that works? Yeah. He's really counting on his church members never actually watching the show. 
So he tells them that they were mean to him. Sounds like his M.O. Of course it does. And, you know, hot stove analogy again, anyone? (laughs) He just told all these people not to watch the show. Yeah. Guess what they're going to do? Hopefully they watch the show. And hopefully they figure out that this particular emperor really has no clothes. Mm. And it's just raining good times on Christians (laughs) behaving badly tonight. So it is. And just one more here. This is about to be over. I promise. (laughs) Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma was speaking at the Family Research Council's Pray, Vote, Stand Summit. He truly believes that God approves of his state's regressive abortion ban so much that he made it rain. Speaking with FRC President Tony Perkins, Lankford insisted the rain was a clear and literal sign from above. Perkins says, I believe that as these states embraced biblical truth as it pertains to life, that I believe God's going to bless those nations or those states as those states come into alignment with God. I believe it's going to be a testimony to the rest of the nation. Again, another sign of God's mercy that he will pour out his blessing on those who choose to walk in his way. Yeah, poor is right, evidently. Mm. And Lankford says, I agree. And that's not some radical principle just for people to be faithful and for God to bless them. I mean, it's the most basic principle of all. As funny as it sounds, we've experienced a big drought in Oklahoma. The week after we passed this law to be able to protect the lives of children, we had the most overwhelming rainstorm that came across the state. And it was such an interesting conversation among people in the church, like, did that just happen? Did that occur? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of other things occurred that weren't entirely good as a result of that either. Yeah. Because, yeah, you need the rain. But when you get too much at one time... That's not great. It's not a good thing. And this abortion ban, it bans all abortions from fertilization onwards. There's an exception for rape or incest, but only if those crimes have been officially reported. And of course, there's also a way to sue people for having them, as one does. This is, it's just, it's spreading like a cancer, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And then, yes, there was a rainstorm a couple of weeks after that. A really, really hard rainstorm that caused floods and destroyed desperately needed crops. There you go. That's what I was saying. And the kicker is, Oklahoma is still in drought conditions. One rainstorm, no matter how big, is not enough to end drought conditions. Now try explaining that to people who believe that there were plants on this planet four days before there was a sun. Yeah. So the weather went from one extreme to another. But he's a climate denier, so of course rain is a sign of that God is happy, even if it caused disaster. Well, I mean, what else does God do but cause disaster? (laughs) He can be happy, he can be sad, he can be anywhere in between, and the only way that he knows how to deal with anything is causing disaster. So I feel like this is on par for Yahweh and his M.O. Yeah. You know, that's just my, my two cents on that part of it. And speaking of two cents, we just want to let you know that uh, that's a horrible segue, isn't it? (laughs) But I'm leaving it in just because that's where my brain is going right now, you know. And uh, with that really tasteless segue into our Patreon promo here, we're just going to we're going to keep it short and sweet and tell you that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash unbound podcast network. If you'd like to make a donation, that's where you're going to do it. And if you don't have the means to make a donation right now, then again, like we say every week, 
likes, shares, five-star ratings, and simply telling someone else about the show this week is going to take us steps unknown to helping more people get in Stay Unbound. So that's your job for this week. Do all the things that help podcasts grow. If you like the show and you've never left a review, now's the time to do that. If you like the show but you're not subscribed, now's the time to do that. And leave those five-star ratings. Everything that you do for us is going to help us gain more exposure and get this message in front of more people. So keep that in mind as you continue to listen, as you continue to benefit from the content that you're getting here. Because I feel like in our genre, we have a lot to say and we say it in a way that is unique. So if you agree, help us out in the ways that we described. And also don't forget to come back next week. No, I am not taking a week off for road tests this month. I had a three-week sabbatical to collect my thoughts, and to be perfectly honest, I'm going to put it right on record. It's starting to get easier. Yeah. Doing this job is starting to get easier. It's been a long time since I put in a 13-hour day. <laughs> but, um, you know, today came close. Yeah. But, you know, we had a couple bombs dropped on us in terms of uh, procedural stuff and whatnot that I had to kind of make some adjustments on. And it's going to be a couple of weeks to really get that plane off the ground, as it were. So I put in some extra time today. There'll be extra time through the course of the next couple of weeks. But I'm not going to slow down with this. We took some time off. And I really want to give you guys a full schedule of good content for Unbound October. And you know what? I think... I do believe that I forgot to mention this one. Things are still a little bit of a haze in my head. So if I did mention this... Great. But we're actually going to be starting out Unbound October with an episode on ghost investigations. Yeah. I I was very, very into this <laughs> for quite a while. So we're going to talk about some of my experiences, how I saw this then versus how I see it now. And you might be surprised at the real deep dive that I took into this and some of the things that I took away from it. And no, I can't explain everything that I saw and experienced but it doesn't mean that it didn't have some very simple explanation behind it, kind of in the vein of some of the things that we've talked about in in recent weeks. And I will expound more on that as we talk about some of the investigations that I've done. You actually did one that I can remember with me. Yes. But only one. I was was way into this. I don't know how many of them I I managed to attend in a pretty short amount of time. Mm -hmm. But we will get into more of that next week. For right now, I really just want to dive into this movie because it was one that freaked me out so bad when I was a kid (laughs) that it was nice being able to look at it again literally decades later. It's been decades since I've seen this movie. And It was good for me to be able to look at it through the eyes that I see it through now. Yeah. And I don't want to bore you guys with preamble. Let's just get right into it. From the director of Cocoon 2, (laughs) we get Resurrection. And it starts off by really pushing the woo-rificness of the story. You've got this really over-the-top music. You've got these visuals of magic hands and rainbows and auras and all kinds of imagery that just scream, supernatural stuff's about to happen, people. Strap (laughs) in. And yeah, a lot of supernatural stuff is about to happen. But after sitting through the shortest opening credits ever, we start off watching this group of people just enjoying a day out by the seashore. They're down by the seaside in a place that really looks like Seawall in Maine, but isn't. I think it's probably Pacific Northwest. Right. 
And here we meet, among a couple of other people who will have absolutely nothing else to do with this story, Edna and Joe. And uh, they're out with their friends just enjoying the day. And they're looking into tide pools, which right. is something that I actually like to do when we're up in Yeah, Maine. that's fun. You don't always find a whole lot of stuff right. in them. But when you do, it's real interesting. Mm-hmm. So they're looking through the tide pools and, and one of them comes across what they refer to as a sea enemy. It's a, it's an anemone, but that's okay. I think Nemo had trouble with that word too. <laughs> so Joe, being the prankster that he is, he moves in for a closer look at this thing and basically starts to pet it and starts mansplaining about how sea anemones eat. That's a nice little lead-in for his little prank here. He pretends that his finger is literally being eaten by one of these things. Yeah. He pulls his hand back, pretends that his finger's been bitten off, and then shows him, that's eh, all right. Because, of course, we already knew that it yeah. was all right. I think he'd be freaking out just a little bit more than he was if yeah. someone was literally eating his finger. Mm-hmm. But, um, but that's Joe. And the whole purpose of that is to just basically get you to like him so that you care when they kill him. Okay? Yeah. That's pretty much it. That's going to happen in short form here. Um, So Edna is talking to one of her friends about how she's getting Joe, that's her husband, a new car for his birthday. And I found this line. It's like, this is 1980. And she Uh says, and the rest only comes to $237.45 a month. And I can make that easy out of my salary. Um, The last car that I bought didn't have payment that high and that was in 2015 so number one what kind of car is this and number two what the hell does she do for a living that she can afford that easy out of her salary in 1980 in 1980 you know just a little aside here i'm in a bunch of the gen x groups on facebook and somebody posted a receipt a couple of weeks ago of the Atari that they bought, like around 1981. Right. And I actually looked up the conversion on this, and it turned out that if these people had purchased this thing in 2022, it would be over $700. Yeah. Okay? That up from, I think it was about, it's close to $200, so more than three times. So we're talking about a car payment here, that would be about, um, uh, again, about 700 bucks. Yeah, it's or, crazy. Or thereabouts. So, you know, we never find out precisely what it is that she does. No. Only that she has this crazy good job that provides her with crazy good pay that she can just turn around and buy a car for her husband and make the payments easy out of her salary. And then uh, we find out why Joe is worthy of the new car. And they linger just a little bit too long on this scene. I mean... Yeah. We could have dealt with just seeing them in the afterglow of their passion, but no, we have to listen to them grunt and groan for about 30 seconds first. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really... Like, we, yeah. we didn't need that movie. No. We just really didn't. <laughs> she gives him the car when he's on his way out of work. So he has no idea that this is about to happen, and he sees it, and of course, you know, he's like really, really, really happy because this is something that he wanted badly. And this... You know, I... I, I would love to get a birthday present of that of that magnitude. But, you right. know, it's more of what makes this movie that much more unbelievable. Right. But uh, so here's what we know 
about Edna so far. She does something that earns a lot of money by 1980 standards. She's horny as fuck, and she really, really loves her man. And that is the whole setup for the next scene. They're out joyriding in this car, but tragedy is about to strike. Some kid rolls out in front of them on a skateboard, and they swerve to avoid him, and they go off a cliff. And this scene... It freaked me out so bad as a kid, okay? They visualize Joe's death, and there's this part in the beginning where you've got, it looks almost like a plate glass window of some sort, but it's just like some kind of barrier that shatters, okay? The barrier between life and death shatters for this guy. That, I believe, was Joe's vision. And then we get to see Edna's vision because she has her own near-death experience here, complete with a light at the end of the tunnel and people walking around as she gets closer. If this is heaven, I got to say, it's kind of dark and looks kind of (laughs) boring. But let's be fair, we haven't actually made it to the light yet. But all of these people around her have apparently been gone for a while. And they're just sort of meandering around in this darkly lit nothing. Yeah. So I'm not sure what we're supposed to glean from that or whether we're supposed to think that this is a good thing or what. I think it's the foyer of heaven. Yeah, I guess. But you would think it would be better lit. You would think. Maybe some entertainment, some snacks, you know, (laughs) canapes, nut cups, you know, whatever. Um and, and that's what I was thinking, is that if this is heaven, it really looks boring. And, you know, at the beginning of the movie, I'm thinking, well, it may just be a bunch of people who have recently died and are following the light. But there's more to it than that. We're going to find out later. Some of them appear to be guiding Edna on, and there's one lone shadow waiting in the light. And we never really get a good look at who this is. Because as she starts drawing closer to the light and this person that's waiting there, I know there had to be people in the audience thinking that this was Jesus. But no, not quite. We find out a little bit later who it actually was. But at this point, she's getting close to the light. And then she literally, it's like she's being sucked right back out of the tunnel. Right. And that's because the doctors have saved her life. And now she is coming too. And the first thing she sees is one of the doctors. He says, I'm Dr. Heron. Welcome back. You know, for a movie that doesn't develop Jack Q shit, they certainly went miles toward making sure that everyone had a name. Yeah, that is weird. Yeah, yeah, because we're never going to see Dr. Heron again after this uh, nope. after this scene. But we had to know that this was him. Mm. So Edna is told that Joe is gone and that she has a back injury. She has a blood clot in her spine and that has left her paralyzed. She's got other problems too. Dr. Heron tells her about the blood clot and then he says we've relieved most of the pressure, but it's still there. In time, it may go away on its own, but there's no guarantee and the main nerves in both of your legs, the main nerves, what the fuck does that mean? I the don't... main nerves in both of your legs have been severed just below the knee by a piece of the car frame. And they said, we've done some patchwork. But who the fuck is this? Dr. Frankenstein? <laughs> we've done some patchwork. We can rebuild her. You know, the six and change dollar woman at this point. I don't know. Basically. And Edna, of course, she already knows the answer to the question, but she asks it anyway. She says, she says that won't go away ever. And Dr. Heron says, no, I'm sorry. So she's basically been, she, she's been given this fate that she's never going to walk again. Right. That even if the problem with the back writes itself, these main nerves in her <laughs> legs 
are just never going to recover. So now we get a visit from Edna's father. And dad asks her to come back home to Kansas with him. And there is stuff between these two. There's definite tension, but they don't get into this until later. He tells her that if she doesn't want to stay with him, that she can stay with family. So we know that there's stuff between these two. Oh, yeah. Now we see her at Joe's grave. And, uh, you know, again, the way that this movie handles time is really, really wonky. It's very weird. Because, I mean, Joe is not only six feet under. There's there's no dirt mound in front of the tombstone. It looks like that tombstone's been there for years. Yeah. And she's just sort of standing there and talking to him. And you know that this all of this just happened because she's standing there and talking to the tombstone and saying, I'm glad you liked the car, honey. I'm really sorry it turned out like this. And then she says something interesting. And I, I can kind of relate to this. Mm. She says, I haven't cried very much. It's really got me puzzled because I love you so much. And then I love this part. And unfortunately, she's already gotten herself convinced that there's an afterlife. She says, goodbye, sweetheart, which to me would have a much different meaning than it did to her. Yeah. Because at this point, she's at least got an inkling that in this universe, there's something beyond So I thought it was interesting that she was saying her goodbyes. She doesn't seem like she expects to see him again, even after what she's been through. So, so far, she's definitely paralyzed and she is in a wheelchair and she's remembering her near-death experience. And it dawns on her that it was Joe waiting for her at the end of it. In any other universe, you could just call this wishful thinking. But in this one, it seems to be a thing. Now her dad is driving her home, and they stop at this gas station, which is clearly miles and miles from home. It's a long way from home, but they don't really tell you precisely where. It's just somewhere in middle America. And this place is as middle America as one gets. Especially in the 70s. Yes, definitely. And they focus in on this one particular sign. There's a bunch of signs with all kinds of platitudes on them. But they decide to focus on this one that says, God is love and versa visa. The owner is very friendly and talky. His name is Esco, and he has a two-headed snake and a dream of seeing Machu Picchu. I think she he charged her a dime or 15 cents to Something see the snake. Something like that, yeah. And it was a real snake. This was long before CGI. Yeah. They, they actually found a bona fide two-headed snake. They exist. Oh, yeah. But, you know, just, just seeing it like that, it's just, it's it, was, it was very, very weird. And he's talking about this dream that he has of one day going to Machu Picchu. And there's a too long discussion about that. And dad agrees because he is starting to get a little bit irritated. But Edna seems really, really taken by him. Yeah. And it's like she's never seen anything quite like this guy before. So she's taken by him in a good way. Yeah. And in a way that she's going to be drawn back to later. So dad's getting impatient. He says, we got a lot of driving to do. And I love Esco's response here. He just sort of looks at Dad, and in that airy sort of way that he has, he says, don't we all? Mm. Not really a foreshadowing, but just more of who this guy is and how he thinks. Yeah. So they're leaving, and of course, you know, on top of Versa Visa, we get to hear him say, Arriva Derry. <laughs> and then he says, go purefully with peace in your heart, love in your eyes, and laughter on your tongue. And if life don't hand you nothing but lemons, you just make a bunch of lemonade. And I'm like, well, that's 
talk about full service. Yeah, you know? right. That's that's above and beyond for a guy pumping gas. <laughs> but they leave, and now it looks like you know big jump cut. They they were miles and miles from home, and now here they just are. And Grandma is absolutely elated to see Edna back home. And Edna seems like she's able to not really walk, but she can stand with crutches. She calls them canes, but she can kind of stand up. But walking is a different, uh, it's a different thing. Right. It's kind of weird. I mean, she was told that she was paralyzed. And I guess that the back issue started getting a little bit better, but there was no way that her legs were ever going to work again. She was told that much. And Grandma says, now it's time to catch up. And they're looking at old pictures and reminiscing. And, oh, I can definitely relate to how this feels. Yeah. There are still there's still some pictures somewhere that I need to pick up. Yeah. And get back in touch with, you know, some of the better parts of my past. I totally get this part of it. Now we learn that the people that she saw in her near-death experience weren't at all random. Grandma shows her pictures of relatives who died, and Edna realizes that she saw all of them, and that's why they were guiding her forward. These She didn't recognize them at the time. Right. But now she's looking at these pictures, and it's all coming together, and she's kind of freaking out. The realization is definitely too much for her, and she breaks down, but she does get over it pretty quickly. Word is out that she's back, and... This huge family. How many people are in this family? I figure most of them are family, but some of them are town folk too. Right. But they're gathered around for what looks like a pretty epic picnic. And Edna says that she's been gone so long she doesn't remember anyone. So cousin Lois catches her up. And in the midst of this, one of the kids gets a nosebleed. And apparently this is a thing that she has a history of. And it doesn't stop. She needs medical intervention to make these things stop. Yeah. And Edna is kind of downplaying a little bit. And then she's told it doesn't stop. She's a bleeder. And they're afraid because apparently they're pretty far from a hospital. This is this. uh, They're out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And this concept's going to come back too. But Edna just asks if she can hold the kid. Her name is Lizzie. And she distracts the kid by going through one, two button my shoe and making the kid do it with her. And by the time she gets to the end of it, the nosebleed is done. No more blood. And people are amazed. And they're looking at her like, what did you do? And it's the damnedest thing I ever saw. Well, Grandma comes over and she says, give me your hands. So Edna gives her her hands and Grandma says, they're hot, like a stovetop. And now mine are too. You know, people used to say this to me when I was doing Reiki. Right. They would tell me that my hands got hot or cold or whatever. Again, more of that perception of, you know, what you think should be happening here. You think this is something that should happen and it just sort of happens. And I see the exact same thing happening here. So this kind of segues into a conversation about Edna not being able to have children. She's afraid that she's missed her chance because of everything that she's been through, plus now we got to add this to the mix. So it's not likely that she's ever going to be able to have kids of her own, but she's enjoying seeing all the younger kids in the family, and she's really taking it in. And now Edna and Grandma are about to talk about what they are considering to be a dream that she had. So Edna's retelling of this involves the tunnel and the people, and she says that there were bells and chimes, And then all of a sudden she was just moving backward. 
And then grandma starts filling in details. She's like, there's light. Yes. And people helping. Yes. And then when you're moving back away from it, you start to feel bad. And there's this buzzing that starts and such like as that. And Edna is just dumbfounded and confirms all of it. And this was interesting. This was grandma recounting something else that she had witnessed. She says, just before we come here from Georgia, I know a woman from Macon, Harriet Eller, got pneumonia. She up and died for more than 10 minutes, nary a breath out of her. And then just as they's ready to, to carry her down to the icebox, she comes back to life. Child, it was just like you've been saying. Anyways, not long after that, she started curing folks thereabouts. Maybe this here accident of yours? Don't know. Could be the power done opened itself to you. So there's our foundation right there. <laughs> Apparently, Grandma has known at least one other person that, that this has happened to. So that's the lead-in for the rest of this story. Edna just sort of gives her this look like it's all so ridiculous. But Grandma never skips a beat. You know, Grandma is just sort of out there in her own universe. <laughs> and she says, the Lord moves in mysterious ways. We don't have nothing to say about it. And Edna is sitting there and seems to be really thinking about this, although I don't think that she's buying the God stuff, even no. after what she's seen. And it doesn't seem to me like God is a huge priority in no. her life and in her thoughts. So Edna's sitting there thinking about all of this. And she looks down at her own legs and she says, what the hell? Crazier things have happened. And then she does what anyone in the know is going to identify as self-reiki. She decides that she's going to try and heal herself. So she touches her legs for a long minute and then tries to stand up. And lo and behold, she stands up. Then she decides to try to take a step. You see, I relate to this part of it a lot because yeah. I once had to relearn how to walk after surgery. And I know how badly you want to just get on with this task of walking mm -hmm. again. And that's where she is. And she does what I did. She goes to take a step and falls right down on her face. So apparently it didn't work and grandma is just old and crazy. <laughs> so now the family dog, Clancy, decides to come visit. Edna keeps trying to walk because she's just super determined to make this happen. Yeah. And now we start moving into the realm of law of attraction. Mm. She's sitting there and she's saying, I can heal myself. I can. I can. I can. This is exactly what they tell us to do when you're trying to manifest things or when you're trying to attract things like healing. This is exactly what they tell you to do. So over and over again, she tries to get her legs and toes to move and keeps failing to heal herself. She's literally screaming at her own feet, telling them to move. Then a fly lands on her toe and she unconsciously flicks it away. Wait, what? So yeah, now she can move her toe and she notices and she's very excited. You know, it, it, it is progress. It's definitely progress. And at this point, I thought that it was interesting. She definitely decides to give Yahweh the nod. She's like, if that's you, God, thank you. But then the disclaimer, or whatever great, wonderful power you are in the universe, thank you. So not on the God bandwagon, but she's willing to give credit where it's due. Mm -hmm. So there is that. Now she's showing the family what she can do. She takes a couple of steps and then falls back into her chair. The town doctor is there and gives her the pinprick test to see if she has feeling in her legs, and she does. When he prods her with the needle, she can feel it. 
when he tries to fool her, she's not fooled. She knows when she's being prodded and she knows when she's not. So all dad has to say about any of this is, I expect if you get walking, you'll be leaving again. And I don't know, based on what we know about these two and their relationship, I don't know if this is sad or if it's hopeful. I cannot tell by the way that he says it. You know, dad is not big on showing his emotions until he's really, really, really pissed. And even then, you just have to understand that he's really, really pissed. So I haven't the foggiest clue whether or not this was him dreading it or hoping for it. But grandma, of course, chimes right in and says that all of this is God's work. And there's the whole part about God being love and all of this. And Edna says, I don't think I really know anything about God. But if love is God, I guess I could. So uh, it would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. If you could really honestly associate love with the God that they're talking about. That would be wonderful. Well, that was a really common saying in the 70s that God is love and vice versa. Yeah. Or verse visa. Versa visa. And she seems like the type who's just sort of like going along with her life. And she doesn't really think about spirituality all that much. But she believes in God. She believes there's something out there. Yeah, she believes in, in the in the great ethereal something. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so she's not an atheist by any means, but she's not a Christian either. Right. So now we get to meet Cal Carpenter, and he makes quite the first impression. One of the other locals drives up in a truck where a wounded Cal is just laying in the back of the bed. He's been in a bar fight and applying redneck logic to the situation. His buddy tells Edna that since she could stop a nosebleed, maybe she can fix a knife wound and stop this guy's bleeding. They're miles away from any hospital, and the fear is that Cal will probably bleed out on the way if he doesn't get some kind of help. Now, here's the thing about Cal. He's lying here at death's door and still manages to be a horny, drunk asshole. He's a gem. Oh, yeah, he really is. And he's like laying there half unconscious, but he still recognizes a pretty girl when he sees one. So Edna comes out and he's all like, hello, sweet stuff. And then he tells his buddy to get a bottle and give her a drink. (laughs) So, of course, they try and get him to shut up so that Edna can do what Edna does. And (laughs) he says, shut up, Cal. Shut up, Cal. Edna's trying to help you. Oh, is that a fact? Well, come here, darling. I can help you, too. You know, we can kind of help each other. Like, oh my God, dude, you're dying and you're still thinking with your dick. Let's just make sure we understand something. You need blood to make that happen. (laughs) So the more you lose, the less likely it is you're going to get any. So maybe you should just let her help you, you know? So of course she puts her hands on him and the bleeding stops and they move on to the hospital because they still have to, you know, that they have to close that wound. Yeah. So they're still going to the hospital, but it looks like for good or for bad, Cal's going to live. Yeah. And now the people in town are lining up just to be touched by Edna. And they're all getting healed of whatever is ailing them. And yes, in this instance and in others in this movie, she looks a lot like Jesus walking around Palestine and healing people. And with all due respect, she's really, really getting into it. It's not giving her a swelled head. It's just giving her all kinds of motivation to keep doing it. Right. So that's one thing that I I kind of found impressive about Edna is that she never actually let this go to her head. She just wanted to give it. She had it to give, and she just wanted to give it to the people around her. 
And I think it's kind of amazing that people started venerating her like she was some kind of goddess. And she didn't play into it and she didn't get sucked into it. She just remained Edna. And I just thought that was kind of neat. That's kind of why I was obsessed with this movie for so long. She was just a very compelling character. Yeah, she was. You don't know anything about her, really, but she was very compelling anyway. Yeah, I mean, they, they tell you just enough yeah. for you to, to get a good idea of some of the things that she's been through. But one of the things that bothers me about this movie is there's very, very little character development. Oh, yeah. Even with the main characters, there's very little development. So we learn things about her, but we learn them in small bursts. And I'm certain that there's still more. There's a lot more to her story. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing. It's like with the things that she's been through, you would think that she'd be more jaded. You would think that she would want this attention for different reasons. And no, she she is taking this all in stride. And she just knows that she has this gift and that she just wants to give it to people. And that is as far as it goes for her. Right. So they're at this meeting and she heals a guy who was deaf for over 20 years And everyone is very excited, everyone except for Earl Carpenter. And again, just one scene with this guy, but it's enough. Mm. He crashes the party and he has a few things to say. He says, I've been watching these healings of Yorn, and you ain't never mentioned scripture nor the Holy Ghost once. Now, what is the source of this power? And she honestly answers him that she doesn't know. And he looks at her and says, oh, I think you do. And maybe the reason you don't name it is because it comes from another place. So now she's on the defensive and she just sort of stands there and says, and where might that be? And of course, this asshole comes right out with it. Hell itself, Edna May, because if this were the work of the Holy Spirit, you would speak his name. You couldn't hold back because he'd be speaking his own name through you. I tell you this, woman, even though you heal a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, these works are damned. Isaiah, Isaiah speaks it plain. Your hands are defiled with blood. Your lips are spoken lies. And Matthew says, false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to lead the people astray. So at that point, as a means of just making this stop, she decides to end the meeting and she does so to riotous applause. But Earl just keeps going over the din. But only in my name, my name, will the true believers cast out demons. And, you know, he's he doesn't have anybody's attention anymore. And he knows no. it. And that's making him even more frustrated. But Cal is there, too. Apparently, he made it through. <laughs> and as things disperse, it becomes clear that he is taking quite the interest in Edna, not that he wasn't before, but he's being very persistent. And for reasons unknown, she agrees to meet him for a drink. And they're having this conversation, and it sounds like Cal's dad was one of these abusive types who used to like to use Bible memorization as punishment with his kids. Yeah, great. So so that's kind of a little bit of Cal's background. You only get a little bit of his story, but you get enough to understand what happens to him later, for sure. And now we get to pepper the conversation with a little bit more of that law of attraction action, but from a surprisingly more practical angle. He says, see, my theory is that them that's cured has got the sickness in their minds. And then somebody comes along and prays over them and lays hands on them, you know. And if they believe that person can make them well, well, then they're cured. They cured themselves by believing, by telling their minds that they're better. You know, the real sick ones, the germ sick and the cripple like that, 
They stay the same no matter what. That's my theory. Well, he's right and he's wrong. <laughs> because, and we'll find out that he's he's not entirely on base with that. But this was on the heels of something that happened in the meeting. She did actually encounter at least one person that she couldn't heal. And then later on, she says that her success rate is about 70%. So three out of 10, she has a hard time healing. Right. So it's not a uniform thing that everyone who comes to her is just de facto going to be healed. And that's kind of the point that he's making. For a lot of these people, what's going on with them is more in their head than anything else. And you offer them healing and they believe that they're healed and that's that. Yeah. And, you know, that's true in a lot of faith healing circles, too. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've said before in past episodes that you can experience relief as a result of things like Reiki or having a faith healer pray over you or something like that. Some people do get temporary relief of some of their symptoms, some of the things that are ailing them. Their bodies relax, their minds are in a place where they're not thinking about the situation that they're in. And they do feel a little bit better for a while, but it's only for a little while. And that's another thing that they're going to touch on with this is the permanence of the healings that this person is doing. So then Cal, you know, for a drunk asshole, he kind of has a good head on his shoulders when it comes to certain things. And I like what he says here. He says, my old man's right about one thing, though. You got to give folks a little scripture with your healing. Makes it easier going down. You best dust off your Bible, darling. And I think that was in response to the way that she was lambasted. And it's like, look, if you just throw a few Bible verses in here and there, people are going to leave you alone about this. Yeah. That's pretty much what he's saying. So, of course, Edna is trying so hard to be polite. She just says, well, I'll keep that in mind. And in my experience, whether it's me saying the words or me hearing the words, I know that whenever somebody tells me that they're going to take my advice and keep it in mind, that just basically means that it's not going any further than the conversation. (laughs) And now comes one of the weirdest fucking pickup lines I've ever heard. Cal says, hey, I got an idea. Since I'm such an expert on the good book, well, I could help you out. And Edna asks, how? He says, well, we can work out at your place or mine. Oh, I'll bet you want to work out at your place or hers. (laughs) I got a little room right here in town, just down the street. You know, we could start tonight. So she asks him point blank, what do you want, Cal? And in this marvelously debonair style that he has, he says, what can I get? And I love her answer. She says, the check for one thing, and then you can get lost. Yeah. Uh, denied. <laughs> Sorry, dude. The next scene looks a lot to me like most Jesus movies did, like in the 70s or, or even earlier. We see Edna preaching to an enthralled crowd. And, I mean, it really does look like messianic posturing. Oh, but yeah. that's it's not her. It's how people are perceiving her right. and following her like she is something bigger than she actually is. And she refers back to the other night and says, Earl Carpenter asked me in whose name I do this healing. I've been thinking a lot about that. And I thought I'd just tell you what happens to me when I do it. She says, there's this person standing in front of me, see, and they're sick or hurting and scared. And somehow, don't ask me how, I, I just kind of become them. I start feeling hurt and scared and sick. It's like I feel them. But there's this other me that's outside that wants to reach out and make the pain go away. You know, kind of the way a mother does when her little one gets hurt. It's a kind of kiss and make it better sort of thing. Now, 
I don't want any of you to think that I deny Jesus in any way because I don't. So if you ask me, this is one of my favorite lines in the movie. She says, so if you ask me how the power comes to me, I have to tell you, I don't know. I just know that it does. And I offer it to you in the name of love. Imagine, imagine if any of this stuff was real. Yeah. And there were people out there like this that were using these abilities that they have in the way that she uses hers. Right. What kind of world this would be, mm. you know? Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not real, but the emotion that comes through in that line is, and it says a lot about Edna and her character, regardless of what her father wants to say about her later. But here's the thing. Cal is being very persistent, and he's being persistent to a degree that would get any man a restraining order in 2022. Oh, God, yeah. So, Creep factor is yeah. real. Yes, very, very real. He shows up where Edna is staying. I'm not sure how she seems to have her own digs at the moment, but she seems to. And he invites himself to dinner. And it's gourmet night in, in rural Kansas, people. We're cracking open the beefaroni here. Wow. Okay? And the good china, too. <laughs> but, uh, no, they never say that. But she does relent, and she feeds him and then tells him to bounce. But despite that, he's clearly thinking that he's making progress. But, well... I guess, but she's getting more irritated with him by the minute. This is, again, the pacing of things in this movie. It's just... It's, it's way off. Yeah. It's, there are certain things that are even more unbelievable than others. And you know what? I can believe the whole healing thing more than I can believe what's about to happen in this movie. Right. Okay? Just... She seems like she's getting more irritated. And he's just standing there saying all this existential rednecky shit but somehow he manages to wear her down and now for creepy pickup line number two he says you know you say you can feel the sickness and the hurt in folks what else can you feel edna may and this works it ew. fucking works and all i can say is ew they kiss double ew <laughs> then they kick the dog out because who wants the dog watching you fuck? And it's amazing to me how quickly she went from I'd really like you to leave to I'd really like you to come. Ew. Well, come on now. Yeah. It's no more ew than what's going on on the screen, is it? Yeah, no. So now we're going to go out and ride a motorcycle and, you know, possibly kill ourselves with no helmet, no gear or anything like that. Yeah. This is just their post-coital adventure here. And this is, in my opinion, one of the most ham-handed ways I have ever seen people fall in love on a movie screen. She literally goes from, okay, you had your beefaroni, now bounce, to playing bouncy bounce with him minutes later, to now we're going to ride on a motorcycle and, and pretend that we're Prince and Apollonia in a purple rain, okay? This, and that's yes. precisely what it looked like. Ugh. And again, she comes across someone that she can't heal. And Grandma is a little bit disappointed. She's like, couldn't you help her? And here's where we get the explanation of the 70-30 part of this. Edna says, oh, Grandma Pearl, some people need their sickness to get love and attention, and some people need it to give those things. It's not up to me to judge the right or wrong of it. You know, I can certainly see what she means by it. I'm not sure I agree with it. But it did spark a memory of the I need my pain line from yeah. uh, Star Trek V. You know, I think that that might be kind of in the realm of what she's trying to explain here. I think so. Is that there are some people who just flat out need to go through what they're going to go through. 
I suppose it makes sense in the context of that conversation. So she's starting to get really existential here herself. She's starting to think about things on a much more existential kind of level. But then there's another person that comes to her and she has this uh, degenerative spinal disorder that Edna is then able to successfully heal. Right. And all of a sudden, um, the camera focuses in on Cal because, of course, he's there. And he's actually starting to look a little critical. It's strange how he sleeps with her one night and now he's like trying to suss out what she's really all about. But there's a reason for this that uh, we're going to find out just a little bit more about. We already talked about how his father used to punish him by making him memorize Bible verses. So this is some of that starting to percolate to the surface. And he's definitely looking at her with a skeptical eye. And then just to kind of break up that thought process a little bit, they're approached by these researchers. They say that they're from the West Coast and they introduce themselves again. Everybody needs a name in this thing. So now we get to meet Paul Hankins and Joyce Baxter, and they're from the California Institute of Psychology. They say, we've been watching your healings and we're convinced that what you're doing is absolutely genuine. We've seen a lot of people who claim to do what you do, but in our follow-up investigations, most of it falls apart. Your healings don't. The effects seem to sustain. You haven't been 100% effective, have you? And that's where she says that she misses about 30% of the time. Well, we've got some machines back at the Institute that can measure and record this thing in different ways. We'd like you to come back and do some tests for us at our expense, of course. And she's like, kind of like a guinea pig. And they concede, well, kind of. And she's like, no thanks. So, of course, they ask her why. And she says, because what's going on here seems to have to do with people and feelings, not wires and machines. I don't know. It just doesn't feel right to me. So now Cal is starting to get weirder and weirder. He's starting to have certain kinds of thoughts about Edna that have to do with something more than her vagina. Okay. Yeah. And it's starting to drive him a little crazy. So he deals with it like Sam Shepard does <laughs> and has a drink. You know, the, the, there, there are certain tropes that yeah. kind of surround this guy and his acting career. So this was a real Sam Shepard moment as far as I was concerned. <laughs> he has a drink and then goes looking for something. We don't know what. But after a few minutes, he pulls out a Bible and opens it. Now, Cal is becoming really, really distant at this point. And again, the timing and timelining of this movie is just so weird because it just seems like all of this is happening like right on top of each other. Yeah. But uh, he's starting to get distant and Edna is pleading with him to tell her what's wrong. So he says, it's just when I see the way people come to you, you know, it ain't like them tent shows. I watch your healing, making the pain go away. And the whole thing feels like it's something holy. And Edna kind of does the vocal eye roll here. She says, if there's anything holy here, it's just the simple holiness of love. That's all. Believe me, I am not the Holy Ghost. And I am not exactly the Virgin Mary either. You ought to know that better than anybody. And with that, Cal just decides that it's time to go. It's like, this was a very short-lived kind of relationship. Yeah, really. But on the heels of that, boom, boom, just everything just happens so fast in this movie. Yeah. Now dad is at her door. 
And now we're going to see the real daddy and what he thinks of his daughter. He literally opens the conversation by telling her, you ain't nothing but trash, always been, always will be. And of course, she's heard this bullshit from him so many times that she just sort of resignedly says, oh, we're back to that again, are we? And dad continues. He says, you've got a lot of folks fooled around here, but I see what's been going on. I thought you might have changed. Not you, though. Now you're bringing your whoring home, aren't you? You're the same old bitch in heat. And he looks at her and he says, now you listen. I want you gone. I don't care where. I just want you out of my sight. And I don't ever want to see you again. Am I making myself clear enough for you? And she takes it in stride because, again, this probably has been her entire life and why she moved so far away in the first place. She says, I'll go. And I don't ever want to see you again either. You're a hard, stupid old man without an ounce of love or understanding anywhere. And I am sick to death of trying to get you to love me. Can relate. Yeah, I know. In certain ways, certain contexts, and in certain relationships, can relate. Personally, I would have liked to see a little bit more development with the relationship between the two of them. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of the context of why he thought this of her. I mean, they tell us, but it feels to me like there's so much more to this story. And it would have made so much more sense just to have some context here. It's like you learn about her backwards. Yes, definitely. It's really weird. Yeah, that's definitely a good way of putting it. So now Cal is reading the Bible. And this is pretty much all he's going to do for the rest of the movie. Yeah. Because he's going to keep going to the Bible, trying to find answers to the questions that are in his head right now. So Edna shows up and tells him that she's going to L.A. to be part of that study. I guess now she's craving some distance from Daddy. So they're going to do this. They go, and first off, she manages to bend a laser with her mind, which was kind of cool, but I don't know what it has to do with anything. Mm -hmm. And Cal is, once again, looking put off. But the very next shot, they're in bed, and my man can't perform. Yeah. So what does he do? He does what anybody in this situation does. He lights a cigarette in bed. Oh, my God. The late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. These days, most of us don't even smoke inside the house, let alone lighting one up in bed. Jesus Christ, I wouldn't even think about it. (laughs) So he tells Edna that she's scaring the hell out of him with all of this stuff. And she's like, but why? Why does it scare you? He says, it's too much power. Can't you see that? There's something else working here. And she just postulates the question. She says, what? What is it? He says, it's for you to tell me, Edna May. And you know that. Now, I ain't got nothing more to say about it until you do. And it's sounding like he's taking Earl Carpenter's side here, but he's not. In fact, he's taking the exact opposite side of what Earl Carpenter was thinking is going on here. This next scene is fucking weird. Yeah. Now, she did say earlier that it feels like she takes on the pain and the sickness of the people that she heals temporarily. Then there's all that stuff about, well, you can't really cure the cripples now, can you? Oh, wait a second. This is the first and only time we are actually going to see what she is talking about. Because in this particular healing, what happens is very profound and a little bit graphic, too, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. They have someone at the Institute that has some pretty serious shit going on in her body. Right. So they have Edna there and they tell the people who are part of this study 
that Edna has agreed to attempt to deal on an experimental level with a human subject. A Ms. Louise Kaufner, again, everybody gets a name, who's suffering from dystonia musculorum deformans. I can't believe I got that out in one. Yeah, I think that's muscular dystrophy, basically. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, I figured if it wasn't cerebral palsy, the way that she was holding her hands, yeah, it's like it's probably it's probably muscular dystrophy. So uh, Edna leans in and says, "Louise, I don't know if I can help you, but I'm going to try. All right." And Louise says, "It's all right if you can't. I've never known anything else." So Edna does what Edna does. At first, this isn't unlike any of her other healings. She takes Louise in her arms and has her lean all her weight on her. And all of a sudden, Edna starts groaning and looks like she's in agony. This scene also freaked me out. Oh, this bad. one freaked me out huge. Oh, yeah. Louise is just shuddering and doesn't appear to be getting any better. But then we actually see the illness go into Edna. And Edna falls on the floor convulsing, and Louise is now well. And after a few minutes, everything writes itself with Edna also. And now we're having another near-death experience flashback, and it looks like she's seeing her father, but it's really, really fuzzy. Yeah. So so when Edna wakes up, she almost immediately says that her father is dying, and Cal already knows. He's been told. She has not. Right. So, of course, it's one more thing for him to freak out over. And now we learn, now we learn, what drove the rift between them. She goes back to see her father because she knows that this is the end for him. And she's standing over his deathbed and she says, I wanted that baby, daddy. I didn't feel any shame for not being married. God help me, I let you bring that old horse doctor in here to kill that little girl and scrape me out so that nothing would ever grow inside me again. And then she asks him, what happened that made you so hard? What hurt you? What made you stop loving? Daddy, you drove us all away from you, all of us. Mama into her silence, where she stayed until she died of grief. Sam to Vietnam, where they killed him. Daddy, listen, I want you to know that I still love you, and I can help you now. Honest, I can. I know that you're dying, and I know that you're afraid, but you don't have to be. She then describes everything that she saw, including all the people who she names off for him. And as she's speaking, you see this piece wash over daddy she describes the light and the feeling of weightlessness she tells him how you're not going to feel your body anymore and i don't know in the midst of all of this we're listening to this kid just playing on and on on a harmonica yeah and that just added a creeptastic element to this whole thing he's playing polywally doodle yes it's yeah. really yeah. odd and over and over and over again. I don't know. Was this daddy's favorite song or something? It I don't must know. have been. But the whole scene is very creepy, especially since I've had my own saying goodbye experience recently. Yeah. And it's very uncomfortable. And, you know, I, I kind of looked at it through a different lens than I would have if we did this episode even a month ago. But daddy, this kind of glow comes over him. And he says, oh, Edna. And she says, what is it, daddy? Tell me. He says, light, Edna, light. Yes, Daddy. And he just, he, he's kind of enthralled in the whole thing at that point. And he is visibly and audibly elated yeah. at what he's seeing. Everyone knows that these are Daddy's last moments. And those last moments between him and Edna 
fortunately are good ones. And you know what? Those are the moments that matter most. Yeah. Just like when we were all gathered around mugs. You know, these are the things that I try and think about. Yeah. It wasn't exactly a happy thing, but it was a good thing. Right. And I believe that if you can be with someone at the moment of their death, that brings along a responsibility. And that responsibility involves making the atmosphere of things as good as possible. Regardless of anything that might have happened between you and this person, this is it. They are exiting this universe. And even though they will have no recollection of any of it, they're here now. And they perceive what they perceive now. So I do believe that it's very, very important that if you are part of that process, that you are committed to making things good for that person or whatever two- or four-legged member of your family you're dealing with at the time. But in the midst of all this, Cal is getting more and more into Scripture, and as getting more and more into Scripture does, it's driving him a little crazy. Hmm. And what's worse, he's reading from Revelation, okay? Probably the worst book of the Bible that you can read when you're in this kind of a mind space. But uh, he's reading from, I think this is Revelation 12, off the top of my head. That's what I'm thinking. But I could be wrong. But I know that it's Revelation. And he's reading these verses that say, And there appeared a great wonder, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. In that hour he had cured many diseases and plagues. And he answered, The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. And he looks at Edna May and says, you can't deny him any longer, Edna May. you got to declare his coming now. You have his power. I've seen it. You are his power. And he keeps reading. And the woman was bent and could not straighten. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. This in reference to Louise. This, I think, right. was the thing that made him snap. Now the Christ is making himself known to us through you. How many proofs do you need? You heal. You die. You live again. You have the power of prophecy. You knew your pa was dying. You knew that. And she tries to shut him down, but he's on a roll. He says, look, Edna, I denied him and I almost died. And he saved me through you. Now the power is here. It's you. Say it, Edna May. He is making himself known. You say it. And then she's completely freaked out. She tells him that she wants him to leave. And he just keeps going on and on. You are the living Christ. You are the resurrection, the fulfillment of his promise to us. And she says in this very final way, I am not the living Christ. Believe me, I am not. And all I can say to all that is, ooh, doggies, my, my man is going off the deep end. So now, again, a really, really ham handed cut to Cal loading a shotgun. Yeah. And quoting scripture as he's loading the shotgun, he says, if thy law had not been my delight, I guess, I think we're in the Psalms at this point. Yeah, I think so. If if thy law had not been my delight, I I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget thy precepts, for by them thou hast given me life. I am thine, the wicked deny you, but I consider thy testimonies. I will make clear the way of your coming. And that's precisely what he sets out to do. Yeah. Because Edna May is having one of her meetings outdoors with a bunch of people around. And out of nowhere, here comes the lone biker of the apocalypse. Ugh, um, yeah. Cal is charging toward this meeting on a motorcycle with a loaded shotgun, screaming, He shall be revealed! 
And of course, he's not paying close enough attention to what he's doing, so he falls off of his bike. And that allows one, I don't even know if it was an intended shot. Yeah. But the gun fires and hits Edna in the shoulder. Not really a bad wound in terms of what could have happened here. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just thinking there's so much more that they could have done with this. I would have liked to see more of the buildup in the previous scene. Yeah. But they were in such a fucking hurry with this movie. With yeah. everything. They had an opportunity here and they missed it. Yeah. It's like, this is the climax of the movie and it just really kind of falls flat. It's over before you even have the chance to care what's going on. So, of course, now there's gunfire. The crowd is dispersing, but uh, they're not going far because this dude just tried to kill their messiah. And I'm sorry, that's how they see her anyway, regardless of how she sees herself. This guy just tried to pick off their messiah and they descend on him. But it doesn't seem like they are charging him to hurt him. It seems like they're just charging him to restrain him. No one is going after Cal. I think that too many of them know him well enough to understand that this is a Cal sort of thing to do. And then there's, of course, another way too soon jump cut with no explanation of anything. But now all we know at this point is that Edna is again on her way out of town. Grandma wants a final private word. And we find out that Edna did attempt to go see Cal in the hospital, but he refused to see her. So no goodbyes here. She's just going to be leaving town without him. So she tells Grandma that she feels like Joan of Arc. She says, I was just thinking how crazy everything is, that she was burned for hearing voices and I was almost got for not. Mm. So, yeah, that's actually a really good analogy. Can't Um, win for losing. No, very true. Not this girl. Absolutely not. So Grandma is sad because she knows that she's not going to see Edna again, you know, until. Yeah. And Grandma, she's big on the platitudes also. Yeah. She's like, if we could just love each other as much as we say we love him, I expect there wouldn't be the bother in the world there is. You know what, evangelicals? Maybe if you actually had a God who was able to teach you what love is, then this world would be a better place, whether your religion was true or not. But unfortunately, that's just the way that things are. And this is the, a little bit more of that pie-in-the-sky God-is-love BS mm. that they all latch onto without any reason to latch onto it. Other than that, it just gives them the right quiver in their liver. You know, that's <laughs> yeah. pretty much it. And again, major, major, major time jump. Yeah. Because this is now years later, and we get a glimpse of the old homestead, and like literally everyone is gone. Yeah. It's been long since abandoned. It's falling apart. There's very, very little left of Edna's past now. Yeah. So now that we understand that it's a long time in the future, we jump to a family who is just kind of driving down the road. These are people that we have not met. Right. And they're just driving down the road. We don't know who they are, but they seem like they're on this really cool trip. Bobby is their kid, and you can tell that he's not feeling it. You can also tell that he's very sick. Yeah. I mean, just looking at him, you can tell that he's sick. So these people stop at a very familiar gas station. And apparently Edna, at some point, decided to seek out Esco again and spent some significant time with him, right to the point where he left for Machu Picchu and then (laughs) sent her a postcard letting her know that he got there. That was kind of cool. But she has been minding the shop for quite a while, and you can tell. It feels to me like decades have passed at this point. Oh, yeah. And again, she's kind of alone. She's got her dog, and that's it. Clancy the Third. 
<laughs> is uh, is keeping yeah. her company. But still no family, no babies, none of the things that she said that she wanted. But there was a reason why she went looking for Esco again, I think. So now she's running the gas station and these people just sort of show up. And so Edna makes the comment to the parents, that looks like a very sick little boy. And dad says, it's cancer, his liver and nothing that we can. And he just sort of trails off. He says, we thought we'd take him on a trip, you know, let him see some things. He's got relatives in Utah he's never seen, and Lake Powell is nice. They have some boat rides there that just go for miles, and Edna is just sort of listening to him and taking this in. Then she decides, I need to get rid of the parents for a couple of minutes here. (laughs) So she sends the parents off to look at her rock garden, which is actually blooming with flowers that have no business being there. And she and Bobby start getting a little bit better acquainted. She shows him Gemini. That's the two-headed snake. Yeah. She shows him Gemini, but doesn't charge him 15 cents like Esco wanted to. And she can tell that this kid is in pain, and a lot of it. And she asks him, she says, it hurts? He says, sometimes. They give me pills for it. I guess I'm dying. I hear them talking about it sometimes. They don't know I hear them. I just wish it wouldn't make them so sad. And he's playing with Clancy. And these two are getting along famously. So Edna says, hey, would you like to keep him? And... Bobby says, sure, but, and Edna's like, what? He says, I don't think I'll be around to take care of him. And she says, ah, I wouldn't worry about that. Not one bit. She mm-hmm. knows it, it's showtime for Edna at this yeah. point. So Bobby's parents come back commenting about the rock garden and how beautiful it is. It's like, why, why are these flowers blooming in September and all of that? And Bobby comes over with the dog and says, uh, she said I could have him. Could I? Could I? And, of course, the parents are a little apprehensive about this for many obvious reasons. But Edna steps in and says, listen, I think the boy and that dog are just about stuck together now. He won't be any trouble. So the parents relent. I don't think that they're really in the practice of telling this kid no to anything right now. No. Of course, they offer to pay for the dog, and Edna won't take money for the dog. And she says, but uh, you can pay me for the gas. And then she turns to Bobby and says, however, you can pay me for that dog. I'd say the price of that dog is um, one big hug. What do you say? And so he obliges her and she gives him this very long, hard, heartfelt hug and makes sure that those fiery hands attack that cancer something fierce. And yes, we're left with this whole thing hanging, but no matter how she got those powers, she used them the right way to help people not for personal gain, just because she was able and she wanted to make the world a little bit of a better place. You hear that, Benny Hinn? (laughs) And people like you? If it was a real thing, this is how you do this, okay? And that is how the movie ends. We have reached the end of the line with Resurrection. Now, clearly the most important players in this story were Edna and Cal. With the tiny bit of character development we did get here, Edna seems to believe in God on some surface level, but a Christian in the classical or evangelical sense of the word, she is not. Her near-death experience didn't involve seeing Jesus at the end of the tunnel, but rather her dead husband. Her father was more dyed in the wool and clearly had issues with some of Edna's life choices. He vacillates way too quickly between wanting her to stay and wanting her to go. 
it felt as though her level of individuality and her assertion of doing things on her terms, especially in the areas of sex and relationships, was a bit too much for someone who has had the patriarchal mindset drilled into him from birth. I just think that it was really ham-handed how there was no context to that last scene before she leaves for L.A. He wants her gone, he states why, and that's all we get. And for a guy who is so steeped in Christian dogma, he sure was quick to procure that abortion for her, wasn't he? I'm just yeah. saying. So along those lines, I'm actually quite relieved that Edna wasn't confronted with meeting her baby during her near-death experience. I seem to recall very faintly hearing a baby crying, but they don't develop that, much like they fail to develop pretty much anything else in this movie. But I think this was a good call. Not exploring that was a very yeah. good call. When she's naming off all the people dad is going to meet on the other side, his granddaughter is not on the list. I think that the messaging there is sound for a movie about the supernatural. Oh, yeah. As sound as a movie about the supernatural can be. Yeah, pretty much. That's what I liked about this movie, though, was, mm -hmm. was that there were many, many elements of truth and rationalization that were woven into this story. And it made the religious people in the story look like the crazy ones. Yeah. You know, that I kind of thought was uh, a good and definitely unique way to approach something like this. I also like how there's no deathbed reconciliation. They don't really make up. No. It's just a human being doing the right thing at the right moment. Edna's relationship with her father is never fixed. But she does pull out more compassion at the end than I'm sure I could. This makes the point to me that you can dislike someone, but still apply some good ethics to how you deal with them when they're at their most vulnerable. I know I keep going over in my head what my last conversation with my mother will look like, and I'm simply not expecting any apologies or admissions of wrongdoing from her at that moment. What I am expecting is to allow her to leave this life in relative peace. This is what Edna did for her father, and in my mind, it made her the bigger person on a lot of levels. I could have done without the messianic posturing, because after a while, that is what it looked like. Female Jesus roaming the countryside with her preachifications and platitudes. Then a bunch of people get healed, there are excuses for why they aren't, and all kinds of woo-rificness present along the way. In the end, I think she found herself a mentor and a friend in Esco, and facilitated him being able to pursue his dreams. The final moment of the movie speaks to both Edna's fatigue over the responsibility that comes with her powers, but also her selflessness and desire to help people in need. Was there some spiritual reason why that family stopped there? It's kind of implied. And I have to wonder if people just found themselves supernaturally drawn there in their times of need over the time that she was there. Not seeing Billy's happy ending was kind of disappointing, but we leave the theater knowing that he's going to get to live and enjoy growing up with Clancy III at his side, and that's all kinds of good. But the quasi-secular treatment of Edna's gift is only half the reason I chose this movie. The other half revolves around Cal. Between him and Earl Carpenter, you get a very clear view of what this religion and the holy book it's founded upon can do to your thinking. Let's talk about Earl just for a minute as a lead into this. When Earl crashes and starts scripture bombing that meeting, there is no love in anything he has to say. It's nothing but hate-fueled rhetoric towards someone who doesn't see things his way. 
This is one of the most accurate and truthful moments in this movie. And while they rush through its development at a fever pace, so is Cal's descent into madness over the things that he reads in the Bible, applying context to every verse along the way. You know, you can use the Bible the same way people use tarot cards. Oh, yeah. Every verse can have a unique meaning to any situation. You can literally open up that book to any page and assign whatever meaning you want to any verse, regardless of its context or actual message. And plenty of people do. But the more signs he saw, the more convinced Cal became that Edna was not only a powerful healer, but that she was also Jesus incarnate. He had no intention of killing her. He was so convinced of who she was, his little stunt was designed to show that Edna was somehow death-proof. And again, her public actions do nothing to allay these delusions. And I don't know if that's entirely her fault, no. but I do think that was the environment that she created. And that was where all the toxicity came from with Cal. But in the end, I think that she played every bit as big a role in Cal's descent as the book he was taking his cues from did. Cal is also a good example of conditioning. He was far from the definition of the Bible-believing Christian at the beginning, but all the exposure to the religion he had endured since birth culminated in him literally going crazy, as it is with many. Some ride on motorcycles and open fire, some march behind their hapless messiah onto government property, committing life-altering acts of aggression and violence. The motivations come from the same source, and pardon the pop culture reference, but those motivators can and do have a strong influence on the weak-minded. Call it the Jesus mind trick, if you will. The presentation of events here as they relate to near-death experiences is very over-spiritual on that non-committal Hollywood sort of level. But Hollywood is like that, and the tropes that they use to visually present the ideas in this movie are nothing new. It was, however, the first time I saw anything like this as a child. And between this movie and Beyond and Back, I was terrified back then by both of them, even though nothing overtly bad actually happens in Edna's near-death experience. This movie and Beyond and Back are a complete mishmash in my head most of the time, mostly because they came out around the same time, and they clearly borrowed a few ideas from Beyond and Back when making this movie. Mm. Beyond and Back was 78, this came out in 80, do the math. But here's the thing, Life After Death is a huge sell in Hollywood. Just ask Patrick Swayze, M. Night Shyamalan, or a plethora of others. Mm. Lastly, I was taken by just how much love and selflessness are vilified by some of the clearer representatives of Christianity in this movie. It isn't enough that Edna survived a near-death experience and came back with the ability to heal. Nope. If you aren't going to credit God, then your power must be coming from the devil. This is the same toxic black-and-white thinking that pervades all evangelical thought. Love is clearly not good enough if it comes from any source besides God. Even into her later years, Edna understood the responsibility placed literally in her hands, and even with all she went through, she still embraced that responsibility and offered it to others in the name of love. Supernatural details aside, I think it's important to learn the value of selfless service to others when we have the means and ability to give help and support. We may not be able to heal the sick, but we are given opportunities to show kindness to others on a daily basis in a lot of ways. How many of us seize upon those opportunities when they present? How many of us can truthfully say that we give without thought of reward? Edna never once asked what was in this for her. She simply gave as she had ability to give. Learning the value in that 
helps us see ourselves on level footing with the people around us. Putting it into practice without feeling the compulsion to credit external forces for it, that's a sign that you're on your way to getting and staying unbound. enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound.